This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We're taking a close look on the show today at the spending spree that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been on here in the last few weeks. This is unreal. Now you got an election coming at you in October, and we know it's kind of normal operating procedure for any government seeking re-election. They bribe you with your own money. That's been going on forever. They just spend and spend and spend in the lead up to an election. I know that. I understand that. But this guy, Trudeau, he has taken this to a whole new level. I have never seen a spending spree like this one. This is incredible. This is like a porkapalooza like I have never seen before. Some of these numbers are actually just hard to believe. I mean, they're just so big. I mean, if you take a look at just in BC alone, all right, since July 1st, 59 separate spending announcements, almost one a day, just this is just in BC, total amount $2.1 billion. $2.1 billion. This is like $37 million bucks a day. That's just in B.C. Now, you go to the rest of the country now. We got nothing on the rest of the country here. Most of the spending going on in Ontario and Quebec. Check this out. This is unreal. In the last two weeks alone, last week, 595 spending announcements, $4.9 billion. That was in the week. Uh, well, hang on a second here. The, the last last week was $2.85 billion. 333 announcements the week before that was 4.9 billion in one week that's like 700 million dollars a day in one week this is shoveling money off the back of a truck now remember 2019 that was the year that justin trudeau said he was going to balance the budget remember that instead he's spending like the old proverbial drunken sailor here is the hot question of the day with all this spending going on across Canada and right here in British Columbia, would you say these announcements influence your vote? Would you say, yeah, I like all these new services, I like this spending? Or would you say, no, this is just vote buying? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find it. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line too, 604-331-2899. Let's talk about the new ICBC rate structure coming next week. My guest is James Bolio. Chief Operating Officer, All West Insurance Services. James, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you. What do you do over there at uh, All West Insurance Brokers? You help people get a good deal on insurance, I guess, right? Well, certainly our job is to advise people on what the best route is to have proper insurance while they're driving on the road as well as for their home. Okay. The new ICBC rate structure kicks in September 1st, which is this Sunday. What is the most important thing for people to know about that, James, this week as the clock ticks down to this new uh, rate structure? Well, I think what people need to know, Mike, is this is a modernization of the system. Really what's happening is it's becoming driver-based like many other jurisdictions. So really what we're going to see is a change to where all drivers are listed on the policy now, right. as well as greater experiences counting to have better discounting on your insurance. Right, so if you have a an occasional driver in your home, say a family member who is not the principal driver of the car but occasionally uses the car, you will have to disclose that now to ICBC and the risk 
of that that driver's risk profile will now be factored into your insurance premium, correct? Correct. So what we will ask when anyone comes in is to have the date of birth and driver's license number of anyone else who is going to be operating that vehicle, primarily family members, household members, or employees, but anyone who's going to operate the vehicle more than 12 times in a calendar year. So those people will have to come in and be part of the risk profile in the insurance rating. Okay, and that could potentially increase your insurance premium that you're paying, right? Like if you have someone who's going to be an occasional driver of your car and they're a high they're a higher risk driver, let's say they got some speeding tickets or accidents on their record, or they're a very young, inexperienced driver, is that going to increase my insurance costs now? It certainly could affect the rating. Uh, we will see that with young drivers who don't have as much experience, but primarily with people who've had accidents, or as you allude to, speeding tickets, those infractions will come in and play in their risk factor. Okay, here's one of the things I'm wondering about. Let's say, let's say I have a young driver in my home, I'm going to have to list on as an occasional driver of the vehicle now, I'm concerned that's going to cost me more in my insurance. Would it be to my advantage, James, to go to ICBC this week and renew my insurance for a full year under the existing premium? Is that possible? Or would you recommend that? That is possible, and it could be done. You'd have to cancel the current insurance policy in place, so there would be charges associated with that. cancellation fee as well as an $18 plate fee. And if you were on payment plan, there'd be a $15 fee as well associated with that change. Now, the one thing I would say is really people can go on to ICBC.com and check their individual driver factor. Doing that should give you a very good indication of what's going to occur. And remember, the principal driver of the vehicle makes up 75% of the rating. The worst risk driver makes up 25% of the rating. So what we may see is that the impact is not going to be as great as many people think it will be with adding a younger driver. Okay, so going on to that ICBC website, there's a tool, an online tool on there. You can try and you can plug in your information in this online uh, online calculator, and it can, what does that do? It can give you a rough estimate of what your, your new insurance premium might be? Well, that'll give you a rough estimate of the basic insurance premium. Okay. But if you get that individual driver factor, it'd be like getting your abstract from ICBC.com. That will tell you where you are in relation to discounting. So 1.00 being base rate. And then we will see people with a lot of experience and good driving history being a 0.54. We will also see people with not a lot of history ending up being a 0.8. And those will combine to create that combined driver factor, which will drive the insurance rating. Okay, I'm speaking to James Bolio from All West Insurance Services. James, uh, if people are thinking like, okay, I think my insurance is going to go up next week, so I'm going to be smart here. I'm going to be clever. I'm going to go in this week to, to my, and lock in my full-year insurance rate. I'm going to cancel the insurance policy I got now and then sign up again for a full year. You mentioned there's a $30. Is it a $30 cancellation fee for that? Correct. And then they'd have to replace the plate because remember, the plate is the policy. So anytime you're canceling a policy, you're canceling that plate. So there is an $18 plate fee for the so replacement gotta, of that plate. You got to get new actual physical license plates for your vehicle. Correct. Why do you have to do that? That doesn't. Why can't they just renew my insurance policy? Why do I got to get new plates? Well, because the plate is the policy, Mike, and that's been an issue. So that makes it easy in the system to identify the policy number for someone else. Yeah. But also, 
it is not associated with the vehicle. It's associated with the person. Okay. What if, uh, let's say I'm, I've got a couple of marks on my record too. Like, let's say I've got a cup, a speeding ticket or something or an at fault accident or something else that ICBC might look at, say, and say, Ooh, you're a bad driver. We're going to put up your rates starting next week. Would that be another situation where maybe I might be smart to renew, go in and cancel my policy and renew for a full year this week? You may see some people with that, but remember, the accidents that are counting against people start March 1st, 2017. So any older accidents are dropping off. So we're seeing people getting better rates because older accidents are dropping off. And for points, that didn't come in until June of this year. So any previous points are not counting against you now. But if somebody has had accidents and points within those periods, so before you know March 1st, 2017, they had accidents that they've had since then, or tickets after June 1st, then they can certainly come in and we can see what we can do about rating for them. All right, let's let's talk about the other side of the coin. Let's say you're uh, you've got a clean record, you're a safe driver, you've got squeaky clean, no accidents, no speeding tickets, no distracted driving tickets, you're absolutely clean. Under this new ICBC rate premium structure kicking in on Sunday, should I expect my insurance rate to go down? Well, we're seeing so far with the people we've had in our organization, seeing almost 700 drivers renew so far, we're seeing about 55 to 60 percent of them paying less for their insurance now. And I would say that's about 100 to 200 dollars savings per year for most of those people. Wow. Now, people who've had major have had a number of accidents before March 1st, 2017, are actually seeing substantial savings because all those accidents are coming off their record. Okay, let's say I've got a good record and I've already, I just recently renewed my driver's, my ICBC premium for a full year. Would, would I be wise to go in next week and once again cancel the, cancel my policy and renew it for a full year to get, would I get a cheaper rate then? Would I save money? You may, and that's something you could go and see your broker about. Yeah. Always remembering that in the background, there are those cancellation fees that are going to apply. Right. Uh, but also, go in and talk to the broker to see. Now, I would say I would recommend waiting a month or two before you do that. It's going to be very busy at the beginning with the changes. So, I, you know, instead of spending a lot of time in the broker's office, wait, go in, bring with you all the information you need. Again, all those drivers, dates of birth, driver's license numbers. If your vehicle's got autonomous emergency braking, find that out from your dealer. Bring that because of discounting associated with that starting September 1st. And bring all the information with you, and your broker can certainly give you guidance around whether you should cancel and replay. Okay, last question for you, James. This is some, uh, I don't know, they're somewhat complex changes they're bringing in here. How is this going so far in your office? Do you think ICBC's done a good job in rolling this out? And are you, are you expecting chaos in your office here in the next couple of weeks? What do you think? Well, Mike, I don't think we'll see chaos. ICBC's done a great job of providing training, but really it's been upon the broker themselves to make sure that our staff are ready. And our staff are ready to go. We're just asking customers to be ready when they come in. So bring those yeah. driver's license numbers and dates of birth. If they have all the information with them, this should be a very smooth process. And so far, everyone we've seen, it's been very smooth so far. James, thanks for coming on today. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the time. All right, that's James Bolio, Chief Operating Officer, All West Insurance Services, with his take on the new ICBC rate structure. 
am looking straight at Canadians and being honest the way I always have. We said we are committed to balanced budgets, and we are. We will balance that budget in 2019. All right, welcome back to the show. Mike Smith in for Simi. That, of course, the voice of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Now, that was back in 2015 during the televised leaders' debate in the last election. You heard what Trudeau said there. He looked the camera straight in the eye, and he said, I'm being honest with you. We will balance the budget in 2019. Dwayne, you got it again. Play it again for me, will you? I am looking straight at Canadians and being honest the way I always have. We said we are committed to balanced budgets, and we are. We will balance that budget in 2019. No. No, not not quite. We got massive deficits. You got the government now probably indicating it could be uh, 20 years before we balance the budget, never mind balancing it this year. And here's, here's where it gets really crazy, really ironic. The very year that he said he would balance the budget, this guy is spending like crazy. It's unbelievable the amount of money that's being spent right now in the run-up to another election in the fall. And right here in B.C., if you want to talk about British Columbia, since July 1st of this year, $2.1 billion just in B.C. That's like $37 million a day. And that's just in British Columbia. We got nothing on the rest of the country. Trudeau government, they're spending like crazy, especially in Ontario and in Quebec. The last two weeks alone, last week, $2.85 billion last week. 330 spending announcements. You go to the week before that, <laughs> this is almost unbelievable. 595 spending announcements. $4.9 billion. That's in one week. This is like $700 million a day. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Finn Poshman. He is an economist with the Fraser Institute. Hiya, Finn. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot. When, when you hear these numbers of this scale of spending, I mean, every government does it before an election, right? But I don't know. This seems to be taking it to a new level. Well, it's uh, sometimes a person can be lost for words. Uh, not me. <laughs> Uh, I've been uh, up to my elbows in federal fiscal policy for uh, for more than 30 years. And uh, you think you've seen everything. <laughs> and yeah. then sometimes it could be really, really surprising. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the deficit uh, projections about going back to 2015 uh, didn't turn out exactly as advertised. Right. So, uh, you know, the public accounts deficits... Uh, so it's uh, the amount by which federal spending exceeded revenue, uh, beginning with fiscal 2016-17, was 17.8 billion, followed by 19 billion, followed by 15 billion, followed by two years of almost 20 billion, uh, and it goes on. Uh, if you look out currently, the the budget outlook from Ottawa is for a, a 99.8 billion deficit out in 2023-24. Uh, just to put that in perspective, sum it up, uh, that's uh, $128 billion over the uh, six, seven-year period. Uh, so that would slightly exceed uh, the, the, the then-candidate Prime Minister's uh, estimate by roughly $100 billion. So, what, you know, it's kind of a lot. When I think back to the commitment Trudeau made in the last election to balance the budget by this year... He said that 
look, we're going to run three deficits in a row because we want to spend to stimulate the economy. And then we're going to get back to a balanced budget in 2019. Now, as you just outlined, that didn't happen. But is there any justification at all for this level of spending right now? I mean, the economy, we're not in a recession right now. Some people think maybe we will be down the road. But, I mean, is there any justification? This is not stimulative spending. I mean, this is just pork barreling, isn't it? I don't don't like to use uh, political language like that. Well, what would you call it? Uh, Spending a lot. Uh, and uh, not very useful things. Uh, so the uh, the if 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 I was to to put a good light on it, I'd say look, what the federal government has been budgeting for a lot of infrastructure spending, spending on public goods and services, uh, things that are useful and uh, can you know help you do what you do. You improve roads, bridges, highways. Right. Uh, you're better off getting to work, Mike, and doing whatever it is you want to do in your spare time. So and uh, so so to the extent that the debt has run up or we're even pre-funding some infrastructure spending, if you're spending it on something useful, you've got a story to tell. Uh, but you've got to be spending it on something useful. Uh, so one of one of the announcements uh, that that you talked about, uh, the very nice thing, uh, putting in uh, new change rooms in uh, in an arena in PEI. So, you know, right. that's great for the folks there. We are not building our productive capacity. That's not normally what we talk about when we explain why it might make sense for governments to spend on public infrastructure. And, uh, yeah, some, some rash people would call that port barrel spending when it's announced before an election. Okay, when we take a look at the other party that, that's vying for office here, or one of them, the Conservative Party, Andrew Scheer, I remember at one point said, well, we got to get back to a balanced budget, and I will balance the budget within two years. He has since amended that, and he said Trudeau has spent so much money that it's going to take him five years now to balance the budget. I'm not sure we should believe either of these parties. I mean, Trudeau said he would balance the budget this year and said he's spending like a drunken sailor. You got a guy like uh, Scheer who said, oh, I'll balance it in two years. Oh, no, wait, maybe five years. I mean, what are we supposed to believe here? Can any can any government balance the budget at this point? Well, of course, uh, a government could if, uh, if it wanted to. And uh, I'm not going to speculate on uh, what, uh, what Mr. Scheer is thinking of or uh, to what extent it's political or it's not. It's not my job. Uh, but, um, yeah, the it's setting priorities. Uh, if a government wanted to balance a budget in two years, it could do so. It would probably be a real, it would have been a good idea to say that a couple of years ago and uh, stick to it, whoever was in the government, uh, because when, uh, when the economy turns, and, you know, it's not a matter of if, it's when the economy will turn down, and it will at some day point, we don't know when. Uh, there are some, uh, some, a lot of negative indicators in the air right now, uh, but we don't know that there's going to be a recession. But when there is, that gets really, really expensive, really, really fast, because government's revenues go down a lot. Uh, the automatic uptick in spending on employment insurance uh, and uh, income-tested benefits, that adds up really fast. And that's before you start turning on the stimulus spending. So, you know, to go back to your, your comment at the top, Mike, no, we're not in a recession now. Uh, and right. if you wanted to do some stimulus spending, it sure wouldn't be washrooms in the community center in uh, PEI, as fine as that might be for our friends there. Okay, we just, I know you just got a minute left here. So if we, what do you think, what is the impact of this type of spending and these type of cumulative deficits? Is it just more and more money has to go to servicing the long-term debt? Is that the biggest impact of it? 
oh, that is absolutely a fixed impact. Yeah. Uh, you, you, uh, the, uh, unless you're making very, very useful transport uh, investments that help move goods and trucks and things uh, around, uh, you're not going to get much payback on it. Uh, we, uh, if you're public transit investments, and there's billions going into uh, new railways, tramways, subways, that sort of thing, uh, that could help uh, relieve some congestion, maybe, if people use it, if it's built at the right time in the right place. So you get some time saving, and that's a thing of value. Uh, but it's not the same as uh, putting the money into uh, productive assets that, uh, that help us all do the things we want to do. Thanks for coming on. Always good to talk to you, Mike. Appreciate it. Finn Poshman, he's an economist with the Fraser Institute. Let's talk about a brand new study that shows participating in group extracurricular activities, like being on a sports team, for example, playing soccer. That's great for kids, not just physical health if you're playing on a sports team, but your mental health as well for kids I think is super important. Eva Oberla is my guest, assistant professor at UBC, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi. Okay. In some ways, I'm not surprised to, to see the results of this study. I mean, I got kids who have played soccer, and I think it's just it's awesome for them. Tell me what you found out about this uh, team team activities. Mm-hmm. So um, what we did is we had data from from more than 10,000 children actually, and they um, told us about the extracurricular activities they are participating in in grade four, and then they they gave us the same type of information again in grade seven. And we also gave them measures um, to um, measure their mental health, their relationship with peers, and some other important variables. And what we found was that there were four different groups of children. There were the children who did no activities at all. They did the chil- there were the children who did every sort of activity you can think of. So they did music, they did um, art, they did education programs, sports, individual sports, team sports, etc. And um, then there were the kids who mainly did sports, so individual and team sports, and the kids who. Um, and what we found was that over time, the kids who moved from having done nothing in grade four to actually participating in activities by grade seven, um, those kids had better mental health if they actually participated in activities that involve team sports. And what we found was that um, this was fully explained by um, a stronger sense of belonging to the peer group. So that's how we kind of connected this back to being really about the team aspect and the, the, the availability of peers to connect with and to, to being part of a group that really um, team sports or team based activities drive. Okay. I think uh, team sports are a wonderful thing, like soccer. I'm a big believer in that. What about, um, let's say you got a kid who's not really athletic. What about, could they get involved in other group activities, like being maybe in a band if they're into music? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really good question because, um, of course, you know, sports and team sports in particular, it's not for everyone. Different children have yeah. different interests, and it's important for them to be able to pursue their interests. I think, you know, team sports naturally have that component of working together towards a common goal, um, supporting each other when you lose, celebrating winning together, etc. But other activities actually can do that, too, if the team component or the group component is um, paid closer attention to. And as you said, um, playing in a band or in an orchestra is actually one of the ways that you can have children participate in a group. You need each other in order to come to the to the common goal, which is a performance in that case. And um, you also have to communicate with each other, collaborate with each other in order to work together to get there. So yes, you're right. There are 
ways that are different from team sports that can support that um, that aspect of belonging to a group and making positive connection with peers. Okay, when you talk about improved mental health, are there any specific indicators there, like levels of uh, incidence of, say, depression or anything like that? Mm-hmm. So um, we measured mental health. Um, we measured the full spectrum of mental health. So we measured mm-hmm. positive mental health, which is a stronger sense of optimism, um, more life satisfaction. So that will tap into the you know, into the area of happiness and positive well-being indicators. And we also measured um, negative mental health, which was some lower levels of anxiety and lower levels of depressive symptoms in children who participate in activities that um, included team sports. Okay, I think that's really great. I also think it's interesting that your your survey and study measured kids in grade 4 and then later in grade 7. So let's say a kid starts out not being part of any groups, not playing sports, not being in a band or something when they're in grade 4. Does your study indicate that it's not too late that a, a, a kid can get involved in these activities by grade seven and still have better outcomes? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we yeah. found that those who actually made that move from doing nothing to doing activities, right. including team sports, those were the ones that, that showed the um, higher levels of positive mental health and lower levels of negative mental health. And the comparison group we used there were the kids who, who stayed in no activities. So that was compared mm-hmm. to kids who were in no activities at both time points. So yes, you're right about that. What are some of the, I guess, the, the negative outcomes? Like, let's say you, a, a kid who does, like you said, does nothing. Maybe kid's not involved in any kind of group activities, maybe just home by him, mm-hmm. by him or herself, playing video games by himself or something. What, right. are, the ne- what are the negative outcomes mm-hmm. there, potentially? I mean, these are, these are, that's a really good question, and we're just starting to look into that now, you know, that, that question of what are kids doing if they're not participating in extracurricular activities? Because, yeah. of course, there's also, you, you can design your time after school to be high quality time, even without extracurricular activities. It's just the question is, how, how do you do it? And what, what's the reality of what do kids actually do after school? And there's some initial findings we have where we do actually see that screen time is, um, is, is a lot of kids who are not participating in extracurricular activities during their free time in the afternoon, they do engage in higher levels of screen time that involves video games, that involves um, watching television and other online activities. And do they have better, They have worse outcomes? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Thanks for coming on. Very interesting study. Thank you. Appreciate it a lot. Eva Oberla from UBC on that study. And you're talking about your ICBC policy changing uh, starting uh, next week. My guest is Aaron Sutherland. He's the vice president of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. He represents the private insurers in the country. Aaron, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me today. Okay, thank you. The new ICBC rate structure kicks in September 1st. That's this in September 1st. That's this Sunday. What are your thoughts about this new plan that ICBC is, is bringing out? Well, you know, look, it, it, what they're doing um, at a high level makes a lot of sense. Pricing insurance based on risk so that, you know, high risk or bad drivers, if you will, are paying more and good drivers can pay less. That just makes sense. That's how it's done in the rest of this country. It's long time that uh, ICBC caught up. So, so kudos for them for making some of these changes. But you know, the real question is, what does it mean for your everyday driver? Because you know, the the language and the the things we've been seeing from ICBC on this have changed quite a bit. You know, you'll recall originally it was two thirds of drivers uh, would be better off. Uh, what that meant, nobody really knew. ICBC couldn't say if anyone was going to save. Uh, then it was 75%, then it was revenue neutral, 
you know, now it's it's really hard to see. Is anyone saving any money from from this at all? It seems like those that are are dramatically changing their coverage, uh, and everyone else is left footing the bill. Okay, well, I I do remember them saying that about two thirds of drivers would pay less and about one third would pay more and that's based on your risk profile so if you're a bad driver you're going to pay more you're a good driver you pay less which i think most people would see the the common sense and wisdom in that uh does does that not make that makes sense to you right yeah no that that absolutely does but when you layer in every all the changes like is anyone actually paying less? Like ICBC's got an overall rate increase of 6.3% coming down this year. If you're renewing in September, you haven't seen the impact of that. So you're, you know, you're likely going to pay more because of it. You haven't seen the optional rate increase. And so I just, I believe we need a little bit more transparency from ICBC on what do these changes mean for drivers? Are we actually saving any money? Uh, or is this really just redistributing the pie? Uh, in which case, uh, I think we just need a bit of a clear understanding of what's occurring. Right, so you mentioned the ICBC general rate increase, which for the basic insurance product, which is mandatory in British Columbia, it's 6.2%. That's how much it went up, right? 6.3, yeah. 6.3, okay, and that kicked in in April. And it, so if you're renewing your insurance for the first time since then, you're looking at a 6.3% increase. So if you're a good driver and ICBC is saying you're going to pay less. Are, so your point is what that might be gobbled up by the 6.3% rate increase. Yeah. So this is, this is the challenge, right? If, if you're renewing in September or October or thereafter, you haven't seen ICBC's overall rate increases this year. Yeah. And you know, how much of these savings ICBC is suggesting are being gobbled up by that? Yeah. Uh, you know, and we because again, we, we don't really have a clear understanding uh, or clear picture on that. And you know, the the comparisons ICDC is providing, suggesting the drivers are saving, it also sounds like those drivers are dramatically changing their coverage. And so, you know, dropping other people from their their policies, reducing their limits, things like that. And so, the real question is, if you're doing an apples to apples comparison, is anyone actually saving money, or how many are? Yeah. We know a few people are, but it seems like most drivers, more than ICBC suggesting, are simply paying more. I, I guess it would be like maybe most drivers are going to pay more, but if you're a good driver, you're going to pay like less more, right? Like it would yeah, be. Yeah, I think it'd be less that's more probably, because less more is probably the good appropriation. Yeah, it's going to be less more because if they hadn't brought in this new rate structure you would be paying even more. So you're only going to pay like a little bit more instead of a whole lot more for, for a lot of people. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think that's probably, that's, that's fair to say. And, you know, really good drivers, really experienced drivers of which, you know, maybe a quarter of them are going to save overall. But again, that means 75% of drivers are likely going to be paying more in the months ahead. All right. What is the current status? Uh, let's talk about optional insurance now, which which is the one where the private companies can compete against ICBC. The ICBC optional product that went that's going up this year too, right? Yeah, you know, ICBC. This is the first year they haven't disclosed what the optional rate is going to be. Um, you know, which which leaves a lot of questions as to why wouldn't they say it? And so when when our industry, when our when our experts look at ICBC's numbers. It appears to us optional rates are going up in excess of 10%. So we're talking double-digit rate increases on the optional side. That might be why they're not wanting to talk about those. Okay. 
if if the optional product at ICBC is going up ten percent, which is a double obviously a double digit rate increase, is that good for you guys competing against them? I mean, can you guys can the private insurers offer gen, typically offer cheaper optional insurance in BC? Well, I would I would always encourage everyone to shop around, no matter what's going on with ICBC stuff. I don't think any rate increase from ICBC is good. Uh, for anyone, because you know they're really the the only game in town. Uh, in optional, there is limited competition. ICBC really uses their monopoly to prevent other insurers from competing with them. They deny them access to the data that they need to price their products. So there 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 really is limited competition. But I would encourage everyone to shop around to try and take advantage of it uh, to make sure in optional anyway they're getting the best possible deal. Okay, and speaking to Aaron Sutherland, Insurance Bureau of Canada, I think that. Auto insurance is going to be a big political issue here going forward in British Columbia. It's going to be interesting to see, I think, how the public reacts to this new rate structure as it finally sort of sinks in and begins to hit people in the wallet, potentially. Um, the opposition Liberal Party here in B.C. is kind of suggesting maybe they would privatize auto insurance here in British Columbia, which I know you guys would like to see. What would you say to people as we get closer to another provincial election, maybe a couple of years down the road here still, but... We're still talking about it now. I mean, what what are people? What, what do you want people to know about private auto insurance? Yeah, no, thanks for asking that. I don't know where the liberals are at on this. Yeah. I'm not suggesting we need to get rid of ICBC, right? I'm simply saying drivers deserve a choice, and we need to open ICBC up to competition to make sure that when you, when I, when all of us go to renew our auto insurance, we're able to shop around to find the best deal possible. Uh, and if ICBC is that deal, great. But you should have the best way we can ensure that ICBC is, is, you know, giving us best value for dollar is if we give drivers the opportunity to take their business elsewhere. And if they can and they can save some money doing so, that's a win-win. If, if they did that, and a lot of people would like to see it, and I've heard that argument before, right? Like you don't have to get rid of ICBC or completely privatize it. Let just open it up to competition and let them compete. And if they're doing a great job, like they say, let the consumer decide. I've heard the opposite coin of that argument is if you do that, the private insurers, you guys will snap up all the low-risk drivers, all the drivers out there who are the little old ladies who are just driving an hour on Sunday, people who got you know squeaky clean records. You guys will snap up all those safe drivers, and ICBC will be left with all the high-risk drivers. Well, no, like, look, I'm not going to suggest that we should open up ICBC to competition, give drivers choice, and then force ICBC to be the insurer of last resort. That would make no sense. You know, that would government would have no interest in doing that, any government. What I'm suggesting is we open ICBC to competition and we treat them just like we do every other insurer in most other provinces, which is that you force every insurer to take high-risk drivers um, if they're, if they're going to operate there, and they have to take them by market share. So if you sell... 10% of the auto insurance in a province, you have to take 10% of the high-risk drivers. Okay. And that's what I would suggest you do with BC, so that ICBC isn't forced to be an insurer of last resort. Okay, Aaron, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that's Aaron Sutherland, Vice President, Insurance Bureau of Canada. You're going to hear a lot more about auto insurance, I think, in B.C. as we get closer to another election. Let's talk about the B.C. government's lawsuit against Big Pharma now. The B.C. government says they want to sue the drug companies for damage caused by the opioid crisis. This was a court case launched earlier by the B.C. government and David Eby, the province's attorney general, saying today he's very happy with the court ruling 
just out south of the border. That's in Oklahoma, where the state government there, they did the same thing. They went after Big Pharma. They sued Johnson & Johnson, the big drug company, uh, alleging that uh, the company helped fuel that state's opioid crisis. They got one just like we do. They won in court. So Johnson & Johnson ordered to pay five hundred and seventy two million dollars in this court judgment the bc government taking a look at that and saying right on we like seeing that we want to do the same thing here let's check in with david klein now he's a class action lawyer he's been following these cases hiya david hi thanks a lot for coming on i mean obviously a ruling in the united states does not set a legal precedent here in canada or does it no it doesn't Uh, it doesn't set a precedent here but it is encouraging. And and uh, so that's why we see uh, David Eby uh, announcing that he's pleased with the result. Right. So what was the uh, what is encouraging about it? I guess it just shows that it's possible to take on these big drug, drug companies and win. That's exactly right. It shows that you can mount a case and win that case. Uh, it also creates a certain amount of pressure on the drug companies to resolve the litigation through settlements. Uh, there are two other manufacturers Oklahoma sued that did settle uh, rather than go through a trial. So, you know, they, the hope is that if there are a series of wins against a company like Johnson & Johnson, they'll, they'll see the writing on the wall and uh, enter into discussions to settle out the cases. Now, having said that, you know, that's what happened in the United States with the tobacco companies. Uh, the tobacco companies were sued by various state attorney general, attorneys general. Uh, they entered into a settlement with hundreds of billions of dollars payable over time. But they did not settle in Canada, even though there are similar lawsuits here. So it's encouraging, but... Uh, uh, we'll see. Yeah, I remember uh, the, the big tobacco lawsuits here on our side of the border, and I, I recall the B.C. government going after the big tobacco companies and said, look, we want you guys to pay for all the the death and destruction you guys have caused with, with cigarettes and all the health care costs, and which made some sense, I guess, to go after them. Like you said, they did the same thing in the States, and that was 20 years ago. And it's still go. It's still in the courts. I mean, it is still. It's still going on. It's lasted yeah. for a long time, and we've gone way past the uh, the the time when they settled in the U.S. However, they were different tobacco companies in the United States. With the opioid case, uh, many of the pharmaceutical companies being sued in the U.S. are the same ones who are being sued here. So you know, the, it's it's a it's a dynamic situation. A lot of factors. Uh, it's uh, it's a positive development. Okay, speaking of class action lawyer David uh, David Klein about suing Big Pharma for the opioid crisis, what does the government have to do here to succeed in a lawsuit like this? I mean, do they gotta they gotta prove that these companies were what they were hiding or misrepresenting the the addictive nature of these drugs? The 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 lawsuit centers on an overpromotion by the drug companies of these of of, of opioids, uh, but you you have the essence of it. They're promoting these drugs. They're downplaying the addictive nature of the drugs. They're encouraging uh, doctors to prescribe them, and 
And, you know, doctors make their decisions based on information they receive from medical journals, but also from, you know, and from conferences and from the drug companies themselves. And if the drug companies don't put out accurate information, if they put out misleading information, then these kinds of consequences follow. Could the, could the drug companies conceivably argue that the drugs are actually legitimate medicines? They were prescribed by doctors to people suffering in pain. And maybe they could argue that this terrible death toll that we're seeing from overdoses, those are largely from illegal street drugs like fentanyl. So there are two parts to this. One of them is uh, they will point, you know, in terms of defenses, one of them is they'll point to the doctors and they'll say, you know, doctors are smart people. Um, They have medical degrees. They understand uh, the impact. They read the journals. They're kept up to date and informed. It's not our fault if if, uh, a drug is overprescribed. That's on the doctor. And the second thing is that is that you know many of the deaths and addictions uh, may may start with over over prescription, but it, it quickly spirals into illegal purchases. Yeah, right. I mean, you, I'm sure the government lawyers could turn around and say, well, yeah, okay, a lot of people are dying from these illegal street drugs, but they got hooked on these drugs in the first place because they were overprescribed by doctors. That's exactly right. Right, and, right. And it's the truth. It's true. You know, a lot of a lot of people. Uh, go in for pain control. They're prescribed opioids. They're not followed properly. They get hooked. Uh, they can't get the uh, the, the uh, prescriptions that they want, so they turn to the illegal market. But it starts with overprescription of a highly addictive drug. David, thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. I appreciate it. That is David Klein. He's a class action lawyer in Vancouver. Let's talk about something else that's real scary. Your ICBC bill. Now, ICBC is bringing out a new rate structure. It kicks in on September 1st, which is this Sunday. And the way this works is ICBC says your new ICBC premium will more accurately reflect your risk profile. So if you are a bad driver, you will pay more. If you are a good driver, you will conceivably pay less makes sense right let's check in now with the opposition peter millibar is the bc liberal critic uh, i'm very pleased to welcome him hi peter good afternoon thanks for having me on thank you thank you for coming on what do you think about these changes at icbc well you know a whole lot of smoke and mirrors this is the only time i've i've heard where everyone is going to magically save money uh, icbc is not going to be in any financial ruin as a result of this and in fact they're going to be on stable footing um, you know, something has to give. And so it's time for, for uh, David Eby, it's time for Premier Horgan to be a little more uh, forthcoming with who's actually going to pay more and how much, how punitive it'll actually be, it's particularly to younger drivers, but not just younger drivers individually, but younger drivers seeking employment. Their employer will now have to pay significantly more if they're required to drive for that job. Um, if you live in a household, as we know in Metro Vancouver, a great many people are living longer in their parents' homes, uh, trying to afford a down payment or rents to be able to move out. Um, using that family car just made that household a lot more expensive. Um, and so there's there's going to be a whole lot of pain around. And instead of, of getting an, an honest answer right now, we're hearing that, oh, don't worry, um, everyone's going to pay less. It just simply does not oh, No, up. they're not saying that. They're not saying everyone's going to pay less. They're saying if you're a bad driver... Um, you'll pay maybe more. 
And if you're a good driver, you might pay less. But they did have a, a rate increase kick in of 6.3%, which might gobble up a lot of the savings. So you might end up paying actually more, but maybe just maybe just less more. Yeah, I, I mean, they've raised rates 15% in the first two years uh, of this government. They've uh, still lost about $2.5 billion. I, I acknowledge they are trying to get things, uh, um, you know, in in line, uh, just as we yeah. were doing. That's why we commissioned the report in 2016 that, that was on Minister Eby's desk in July of 2017 from Ernst Young, arm's length. Um, so, you know, people have been trying. I guess what I'm objecting to right now is, is the characterization, and, and we're seeing that, that people renewing, um, we're seeing more people saving than we thought uh, uh, we're going to be saving at some point that the math simply does not add up. And so, um, you know, we need to get a better understanding of how much more people are actually going to be paying um, and, and yeah. how it's truly going to impact things like employers, uh, things yeah. like declaring the extra driver. If you're a, if you're a, a middle-income family with in your 40s and you have 16 to 20-year-olds driving or 25-year-olds driving, um, your insurance rates are going to change uh, dramatically. If you're that same employer, that's a pretty big age group because, remember, it's the worst or the least experienced driver that's going to impact that rate the highest. Yeah, right, and right. So I... if you're an employer and you have someone that's 25 or 20 or 21 years old driving, um, do you still want them driving in that fleet or not? And if you do, uh, what's that cost impact going to be, especially if you're something like a, a Lord Co. Auto Parts store or something like that where there's a lot of younger people driving those vehicles? What's it going to do to those types of businesses and the, the overall uh, service sector as the, we move forward with these insurance rates? Okay, the government says they're trying to put out the famous dumpster fire, as uh, David Eby put it. They're losing, like as you mentioned, like a billion bucks a year or more at ICBC how much of this how much of the blame do the liberals have to share for for the mess over there you guys were in power for 16 years this thing's a dumpster fire how much of that is down to you guys well, I think if you look at uh, at a lot of the steps that were being taken, uh, management was being reined in and being brought under control in terms of uh, those expenditures, uh, efficiencies were being brought in. Uh, what we saw over the last year alone, uh, there was a projected $900 million loss by this government. It turned out to be a $1.5 billion loss, and so uh, I would suggest that their their own numbers and their own targets, they are not even coming close to hitting. And again, that comes down to who is going to pay. Um, you know, they've raised rates 15% over the last two years. They are telling yeah. people this is really meant to be more revenue neutral about getting things in line of, of bad drivers pay more, good drivers pay less. Well, right. it's revenue neutral. That's not helping ICBC's bottom line whatsoever. So we're going through this massive change for what? What it does do, it sets the table moving forward for these systems to be in place, for the tracking of who's driving your car by government, for making sure that they can then uh, just go through with slight rate changes uh, as they'll market them huh. into these different categories. And in year two, year three, year four is where you're really going to start seeing the spikes because they've been able to enable uh, the, the registration regulatory framework within this new system uh, to make that uh, much easier to slide in on people. How much, when you take a look at the mess over there, uh, how much... How much money did you guys take out of ICBC when you're in power? Because I, I think one of the problems is that the liberals were using ICBC basically like a piggy bank or an ATM machine. You guys would just dip in there and take money right out of it and put it into government revenue. How much did you guys take out of there? Uh, my understanding was that the monies that were being brought out were being brought out from the optional side. Yeah, right. And, and, from and ICBC. again, those were being spent on, on government programs. And how, so, much? How much did you guys take out? 
I don't actually know the number. I know. Come on, Peter, I man. Don't you know, know the number. I know. I've heard so many different numbers, and that was before my time. Frankly, I'm. How about a billion? Future. I know the number is a billion dollars. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. What do you sure. say about that? Well, I'll say that went to a billion dollars into other government programs out of the optional side of ICBC, and so. Um, you know, at some point, yes, people still have to pay. We're all taxpayers. They're all government services are going to need to be paid for. That has not uh, fundamentally created the problems that we're seeing right now. That didn't change the crash rates and, and things of that nature. Let, let me ask you this. What would you guys do should you form government again? I've, I've listened closely to what your leader, Andrew Wilkinson, has said. He's had a lot of criticism about ICBC. And there's some talk about maybe privatizing ICBC if you guys take over. Is that what you would do? What would you guys do? Well, I think there's no doubt that we have to take a serious look, and, and I think our party is, is fully on board with taking a serious look on how to make things more competitive for the consumer within uh, the insurance uh, product offerings uh, for auto auto. And, what does that, what does that mean? Well, that means looking at everything. I mean, we already have, as, as when you go onto the calculator right now, you can calculate the basic and then there's the optional. We already have optional that you place with private companies. Uh, we have basic, uh, you know, there is ways for governments to, to legislate what type of basic insurance you actually need to have and still allowing the private market to fill that, that area instead of just the optional side of things. Uh, we do not have governments stepping into the middle of home insurance policies and, and those types of insurance policies. Um, the day has come. Uh, the public has made it very clear that they want uh, their government to look at all options on how to give people the best options possible. For so insurance. that it does not mean that ICBC can't exist. It just means they may have to actually would, compete. Would you guys would you guys allow private insurance companies to compete against ICBC for basic insurance? Well, that's what we have to look at, and that's what we why have can't, to get why can't you, Are you going to look at it, or are you going to tell people what you're going to do? Well, fundamentally, two things. A, we're not in the midst of an election cycle unless the Premier went and knocked on the Lieutenant Governor's door today that I'm unaware of. Um, and so, obviously, some of these issues you do need to have in the conversation on the lead-up to and, and part of a general election. The, the concept, though, is that we are more than open and more than willing to have those conversations and find the best way to give people the most competitive way to, to access insurance uh, that, so that they can go about their daily lives and their company's lives uh, in the most cost-effective way possible and give them the options and the range of, of options to be able to access. Um, you know, the, the fact that we brought in optional, I can remember back in the day when optional was first brought in and people had big concerns about that. The world has not spin, stopped spinning uh, within uh, BC Insurance for auto. In fact, as we pointed out just earlier, uh, we were making a profit on the optional side uh, at ICBC. And so they were able to compete against uh, the private sector on the optional piece. Um, why what? we are clinging to basic and, uh, and tagging it the way we are um, in this day and age um, is something that we do have to have that serious are, look at and try to move forward with. Are you prepared for a big fight over this? with the unions because move up which is the union that represents the employees at icbc they're advertising already i mean i heard an ad here earlier on the show today from move up saying beware of private auto insurance because they're going to make you pay more and it'll be like it'll be like private health care in the united states it's just going to bankrupt people 
Well, I, I think you're always going to have uh, a vested interest on both sides uh, pushing their agenda. It's no surprise that the union uh, representing ICBC workers would want to protect their jobs, and, and that's actually their mandate to do exactly that. So that that doesn't surprise me, much like we're seeing, um, you know, the insurance associations and, and Aaron Sutherland's on the airwaves quite often. I think he was on your show earlier. He was, uh, yeah. Pressing the private uh, side of, of uh, point of view as well. Um, and so, you know, that's that's, you know, fair game, I guess. The point, though, is that polling after polling, year after year, as, as the increases continue to pile up in terms of people's uh, policies, um, people want to have that fully explored Can, option. We haven't yeah. seen that. Uh, through this whole review, we haven't seen uh, David Eby and John Horgan take a serious look and present to the public why uh, going to the basic uh, open market would be such a problem. Here, here's what I hope you guys present to the public as we get closer to an election. And I take your point, we're, we're a ways off from an election, but you never know in a minority government situation that we're in now. Will you guys state very clearly what you're going to do, or is this going to be some gobbledygook kind of message that you give out that, oh, we're willing to look at it or just hint at it, or will you state very clearly what your plan is for ICBC, whether it's privatizing it, allowing private, full private sector competition? Will you be nice and clear to the voters so they know exactly what they're buying here? Well, that would be my expectation. I think that's oh, the good. voters' expectation. So, um, you know, I, I I would suggest to you that uh, for any policy that you're trying to present as, as a government in waiting, uh, the public has a right to know exactly what it is you're proposing to do. Right, And I don't right. think ICBC being any different. Good. I'm glad to hear you say that. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely, anytime. Right. I appreciate it. That is Peter Millibar, Liberal MLA, talking about changes at ICBC. What do you think about what he had to say? The PNE well underway, of course, every year. I really love the PNE. I try to get down there every single year. My summer's not complete unless I take one ride on the wooden roller coaster, which is my favorite ride, and I get some barbecue down in the barbecue pit. So hopefully I can do that before the summer is out. But let me introduce you now to a man that you know as an ace political reporter in BC, but did you know? He is also a former carney who worked for years on the PNE Midway. Keith Baldry joins me now. Hey, Keith. Hey, Smitty. Okay. When did you work at the PNE? What years were you down there? From 73 to 1983, 10 years straight, uh, in a variety of positions on the Midway, always running different types of games. The 70s, man. Yeah. What, what was it like down there in the 70s? I think back then it was a much bigger deal. The crowds were bigger. It was 17 consecutive days. There were no days off. Uh, it was... Uh, it also had a different theme. I think now, I haven't been this year, but it seems to be uh, emphasizing food, exotic foods and weird foods at the PNE seems to be the next, uh, the big latest craze. When I was there, it was things like the Demolition Derby and the Festival uh. of Forestry, which was, uh, again, <laughs> used to get huge crowds near the Midway. What was the Festival of Forestry? Uh, basically, people who work in the forest having races, uh, d- different contests, who can race to the top of a pole. Oh, like a lumberjack a game. Lumberjack game, yeah. throwing axes, who can, uh, who can chop uh, down a pole quicker than, than the yeah. other. It got huge crowds. I mean, these things were not uh, sparsely attended. They were free. The demolition derby was right in the middle of the PE grounds. It was a figure eight. It was just basically watching guys smash into each other for 45 minutes a day. That sounds like fun. It was they, enormous. They should bring that back. I was there as a kid, as a teenager, and it was uh, an enormous fun. It was exhausting, but yeah. uh, made great money as a kid. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was a real experience. Really what jobs it. did you do down there? Well, I started w- working for my uncle, who was a veteran carney, uh, my uncle Len. 
Glenn, uh, helping him with the Fool the Guesser game, where I had to guess people's ages within one year or their weight within one. Oh, pound. the weight guesser. Well, the weight it was just it was basically a gimmick to get people to play because no matter what prize they took. Uh, I paid less for it than what, what they paid me to play the game. It was either $2 or $5. And I did that again for a couple of years on my own. Then I You switched. mean the prizes weren't worth paid what to break people it to paid? You, folks. It's, it's the way it works. So you pay me 2 bucks, 5 bucks, depending on what show. So basically you you're a scammer. It, it's one way of putting it. But the people also, there's a lot of vanity to it. People want to know how old they look. And yeah. I got pretty good at guessing people's ages. Weights were just a, a fool's errand. You can't really guess people's weights because of their bone structure. I mean, within one pound was silly. But people also would want to, you know, I'd also learn from my uncle different ways of making money, like uh, figure out what someone's name is by watching them walk around the midway a few times and hearing what they're called. And then get the guy over and say, I'll tell you what, I'll bet you five bucks I can guess your name. And the guy's like, there's no way you're going to guess So you mean name. if you spot some kid walking down the midway and somebody says, hey, Pete. Yeah, just file know, that away. You'd, you'd file that yeah. mentally away. Yep. And, uh, and my, then scam them. Well, <laughs> and then play them. Okay, but uh, play them. Bring them in, get them to, I'll guess their age. And I'll tell you what, for another five bucks, I'll guess what your name is. Or I'll guess where you're born. <laughs> if, I, if you open up your wallet and I see your birth certificate or your driver's license, I can glean some information <laughs> off that as well. So after Fool the Guesser was uh, the, the, uh, the uh, ring toss, which is just a moneymaker. People are just throwing money at that thing. Then the the water racer game, which is where you shoot the water gun into the clown's mouth. Yes. Uh, for for that, which is always a bit uh, guaranteed to get soaked at least a couple times a day from some I- idiot customer who turns the gun on me because he lost. So some was, some pimply faced kid <laughs> exactly. try and squirt you, and they didn't realize I also had access to a water gun. And I could return fire just as quick as they could. Got you cut me. their water water I could, gun I off. I could actually oh. adjust the pressure on their water hoses, and I used to always like to ensure that a l- tiny little four year old, a five year old one, and beat the teenagers and that would just drive people crazy so these games were rigged basically they're not rigged they're always designed to be in favor of the house and that brings me to my last set of games which i played i ran for a number of years and that was various gambling games in the midway i don't gambling. think you oh. see them anymore because they've been replaced by casinos but there was back then there was no casinos and gaming was very strictly regulated and it was tight very closely monetized, and so we had games like uh, the money wheel or crown and anchor i think they still got those i games think they might it. still have those, but I'm not sure they have the P-Wheel, which was my favorite game, or, or the Flasher, which was, a, those are both mock dice games, and you get really rangy crowds there, and the money's uh, flowing fast and heavy, and it's exciting, and it's fast, and the more games you can get in as a dealer, the more you're going to win for your for the house, which is you represent the house, and that's where, again, the house is favored, because the house, uh, the odds favor the house. You mentioned that back in, that, in the day there, that gambling was a lot more tightly regulated in the province. There were no casinos, no. for example back then so was were those games bigger like this may be one of the few opportunities people had to gamble so would they be down there gambling like crazy yeah. on these things other than the racetrack right next door which was called exhibition park back then that was uh, that was the only gaming venture i mean that back then th- things like uh, the uh, sweepstakes the irish sweepstake tickets remember those yeah. that was like a huge <laughs> event that was one of the few times people could gamble so these, what, there weren't even any lotteries back <laughs> no, then i think it was just the beginning of the olympic lottery in 76 yeah. uh but no this was pre sort of the the old days of gaming. So you had these weird games like the Flasher, which was two uh, road hockey balls you throw into this hopper and they would light up dice faces and it would pay it was called over uh, over seven under seven. And oh yeah. If yeah. you paid, if you bet on seven, it was paid one to one. If you bet on over, it was three to one. If you bet on under, it was three to one. But uh, the odds again favor the house there. The P wheel, which was my favorite, I, th- I think it would be three to one if it landed right on seven and even money. Yeah, maybe that over was it. Yeah, 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 I think yeah. you had it. Yeah. Exactly, I had it backwards. And the yeah. P wheel, which is uh, 
Everybody lines up in sort of a semicircle around the dealer. Everybody gets a P with a number on it, and it's for $2, $5, $10 a bet. You spin a wheel, whosever number comes up gets the pot, except the dealer always gets one bet taken for the house, and the dealer gets a P as well. So the dealer would That's win. the juice. That's the juice, the vigorish. And, vigorish. Uh, and uh, that was just a lot of fun again. Anybody ever catch anybody cheating on All the games? All the time. Really? So in, in the P game, you had to give the P back to make sure you could bet again. And I had to, you had to count, as a dealer, count all the peas coming back into the bottle you're putting them in. And you had to count 16. If you missed, suddenly you only got 15. Somebody's holding back. So I would get people to hold out their hands and <laughs> and the pea would drop from someone's hand. And you wouldn't so believe cheating. how many times a red-faced elderly person, not, you're not your typical young kid or, or you know, a slicker doing this. This was the most unlikely people you'd well, catch. Well, like a cheap. sweet little old lady? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Caught a few oh. of them dropping the, the pee, that, thinking they could hang shame. on to the pee one more time. For shame. And on the on the flasher, people like to move the money around on the on the table to move uh, their money from the losing square to the winning Let square. Let me ask you about the, the rides down at the p and &E There's only one ride. The, let me guess. That I count. The wooden roller coaster. Exactly. Yes, it's a classic. I love it. I love it. I've that it. was down there in the 70s, right? That's been down there for uh, a long time. I think it was built in 58. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, yeah. No, it was. Uh, I started my day every day at the P&E uh, by taking up uh, rides on there, a couple warm-up rides a day, just to wake up. Just to wake you up. <laughs> and especially if it was a late rain, it's just a great way to wake up. And the ride guys were great because I always brought uh, some of the prizes I had. And when I was in uh, some of the other games, I'd bring them to the ride guys, make sure they all had... Um, give them to the guys? Yeah. They could give rides. them to their girlfriends, yeah. and then you could get free rides. So I got at least two, three, four rides a day. And if you do the math, I've ridden the roller coaster more than 500 times. And the irony is wow. my, my nephew, Taylor has been the foreman of the roller coaster for a number of years. So it's uh, the family blood is still there. That's an awesome uh, awesome ride. I love the wooden roller coaster for sure. You and I have been talking about, we were reminiscing about another roller coaster that used to be down there called the Wild Mouse. Now, your memory is that it was called the Mad Mouse. I thought it was called the Mad Mouse in my time. but I, I think it was. I've been doing a little research on this. I actually went into the city of Vancouver archives. And in the 50s, when they first set this thing up, it was called the Mad Mouse. So I think your memory is accurate there. And then I think they later changed it, and they call it the the Wild Mouse. But either way, this was a scary ride. It was scary. I found it scarier than the roller coaster. The roller coaster that you know anybody who's been on it knows that you got that first long climb, and then yeah. you just plunge down super fast. That's frightening for people. But the Mad Mouse had these hairpin curves, very tight yes. curves, and and you would it would jostle you, and you were surrounded it's very by rickety. these yeah, you were surrounded by these steel bars. It was almost like you were in scaffolding and yes. and making these tight turns. And I always thought, if you don't stick your arm out here or anything because you could uh, damage it or, or stick your head out or you yeah, know, be and decapitated. I it. remember running my fool the guesser game in the midway and the mad mouse or the wild mouse was right behind me and one morning we're setting up and getting our stock out and of course the rides are doing their warm-up rides and suddenly one of the cars on that thing came flying off and oh landed on God. the pavement so wow uh, did I, they uh, shut the ride down that day yeah, they, they fixed it I don't, there's never been any incidents there so they fixed the, it just kept yeah, taking customers yeah i think okay. uh, it's never really i mean it's <laughs> a, for all the every now and then there's a mechanical breakdown but i think it's a very safe fair what was that one down there the other day they had a problem with it was, it was a, the beast or something Oh, the beast and all the oil was spilling out yes. and covering people. People were covered in oil. That's pretty spectacular. And there have been, you know, ride accidents around North America. There's, there yeah. are, unfortunately. But you know what? There's never been anything wrong go wrong, as far as I know, on that wooden roller coaster. No, no, exactly right. I, they, all, I love all the rides down there, but especially the wooden roller coaster. I wouldn't go on the beast myself, especially after they had, no. they had the gearbox problems the other day. <laughs> there's certain, there's, um, after you ride the roller coaster, there's really nothing else. Let me ask you real quick. You ever see any celebrities down there in your time? 
Oh, yeah. I remember one of my first days there, Donald Sutherland, the actor, oh. came up to me and wanted to change for a $10 bill. He was making a movie called A Man, A Bank, A Man, A Woman, and A Bank, which was a terrible movie. Uh, Terry Bradshaw, <laughs> the former Pittsburgh uh, Steeler oh. uh, quarterback, came up and played my people, wanted to know, what, what is all this, he said, you know, just in a southern <laughs> accent. I explained to him, he went, hey, how damn, he said, I'm going to play this. So I took <laughs> a bit of money from him, but he had a lot of fun. He won a couple of pots. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was on the carnival, traveling carnival, I had this entire Seattle Mariners pitching staff wipe me out because my game was uh, throw a softball and try to knock two milk bottles off of a, a pedestal, <laughs> and you had to really hammer them. Well, these guys are all fastball pitchers, and they just showed up one night with their cleaned wives you and cleaned me out. Oh, so man. yeah, you get uh, you get uh, the odd celebrity. Okay, you ever you ever go to the PNE still these days just to visit? Haven't been back for three or four years. Ah, the kids are go. growing up now, but I like you. I'd love to go back and at least sample all that new food. Thanks a lot for coming in. All right, do it again right. next year. You bet. Yes, Keith Baldry, Global News Legislative Bureau Chief, also the former denizen of the and a legend, a legend down there in the PNE Midway, a man who. And I learned about this story in the Vancouver Sun with a very fine, with a great article by a very fine reporter, Kevin Griffin. Let me introduce you now to Duke Nyan. Duke, am I pronouncing your name right? Yeah, my name is Duke Nguyen. Duke uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, of uh, North Vietnamese background. That's uh, with uh, with his kind of name. Yes. Well, thanks for coming on. Duke was born in Vietnam. He's yes. originally from Hanoi. Yes. And and get this, he yes. has traveled around the world. And Duke, as I understand it, you have now officially visited every country in the world. Is that right? Yes. Wow, that's amazing. When did you start traveling? Oh, since uh, I left my country when I was uh, 14. Yeah. And, and after, uh, so, so, so that, that is after the, the French war. And after, uh, it's, it's quite, uh, 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 time. And so I, I jumped on the boat and I end up in Europe. What, how, how many countries have you been to? It's, it's more than uh, 198. And I went on also to on the uh, territory like uh, uh, like Greenland, or, uh, uh, Tibet, and or uh, uh, Bear, You know. What's the most beautiful place you visited? Yes, yeah, uh, the most beautiful place is different for uh, for each of us. It is is a place. Uh, where you you had the best time with uh, your heart, your sweetheart, your lover, or your wife. Mm. Okay, and which which country would you say that is for you? So, so, so my best time is when I travel with my my wife and my son all around the world uh, some uh, some year ago. But now he's getting old. He has his family, and he's uh, uh, swallowed by his business because now he's big boss. For multinational, huh? oh. so and so that's uh, 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 and I I, I just uh, have to travel alone. Sometimes it's very difficult. Duke, I know you've been to, you've been to every country in the world. Would you say were any of them dangerous? Did you ever get any situations where you felt like you're in danger? I am not a tourist. I am an overland traveler. That mm -hmm. means I I, I drove. Uh, to to the most dangerous, uh, challenging place. I was I, I have been to North Korea, Yemen, Somalia, uh, 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 Iran. You know me, oh. but uh, 
sometimes in the most dangerous place uh, you you can find the best people and where how, yes. do you, how do you think you got the traveling bug what what is it that makes it made you want to travel so far and wide around the world and visit every country in the world so because when I was a kid so I, I belong to a country uh, uh, being colonized by uh, on the bad people, Chinese, French, uh, 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 you, you know me. And after when you chase them, and uh, we feel free, and yeah. uh, uh, as, a person, as a citizen from this country, before, you couldn't leave the country to feel like you are in prison in your own country. Yes, and sir. so when when uh, uh, the other ones, they are chased away, you feel free and you like to fly away like any uh, uh, mm. bird. Okay, Duke, you've been to every country in the world now. Are you going to stop? You're, you're almost 80 years old. Are you going to stop your travels now? Are you done traveling or are you going to keep traveling? Life is very short because uh, in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in my native country, the people, they suffer a lot. And most of them, they die at 60, not like in China or Japan, or many live until 80 something. I am kind of lucky, and, but it's, uh, I am near from the end. And now I did all what I intend to do. And now I, I, I let um, my wife uh, to 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 have uh, her choice, but she cannot travel my way. And mm. now we can need to travel, but uh, like the kind of tourism uh, uh, on a lux- luxu- luxurious cruise, something like that. <laughs> well, Doug, congratulations on traveling to every country in the world. That's an amazing accomplishment. Thanks for coming on. Yes, so thank you. And, and just, just I would like to ask something. Sure. I, I, I can do all these things thanks to my wife. My wife is my my half, not mm. not my partner, but my half, and mm. she 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 support me good or bad time for fifty two years. Wow! And we are completely opposite uh, physically <laughs> and morally. She's reserved, <laughs> and she she's a she's a Viking, and I am oh. kind of uh, other extreme in the face. But even that, we never have uh, uh, any argument, and and we are still uh, uh, we we still stay like the flower child uh, with uh, uh, full of feeling. <laughs> that well, that, that's a beautiful tribute to your wife, Duke. Thank you for coming on today. Sure, thank you. All right, Duke Nguyen. He's originally from Vietnam. He lives in Burnaby now. He's nearly 80 years old. He has now officially traveled to every country in the world. That's amazing. He loves his wife, too, as you could hear there.